welcome to the Succession Fit Podcast. I am your host, Tom Hine. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Carolyn Armitage. Carolyn is the head of Thriving Advisor Network and has over 30 years of experience in the wealth management industry. Carolyn is going to talk to us about the trends in the financial planning and wealth management field and succession and continuity planning. These are, as all the listeners know, these are near and dear to my heart. So welcome, Carolyn. Thank you, Tom. I'm honored and appreciate uh, our strategic partnership over the years and love sharing the wisdom that I've learned over the years from so many uh, to help others thrive. Excellent. Delighted to be here. Excellent. I can't wait to dig in because you, uh, for those listeners that didn't know, I also was able to interview her for my last book. And she shared, as always, some really cutting edge, important information in the valuation, succession, continuity space. So with that, let's just kind of bring it up to speed, Carolyn. Tell us about your current role at Thrive and Advisor Network. Yeah, thank you. My entire career has been spent in the independent wealth management space, either being a financial advisor and running a firm. I've been an operator for numerous firms in the industry, and I've also done investment banking and consulting work for many of the large wealth management firms. And this last year, I took a terrific opportunity to help build out a startup RIA for Thrivent as they have committed to evolve their business model and they have expanded into the independent wealth management space. So we created an organization called Thrivent Advisor Network, or TAN, as it's affectionately called. And we believe humanity thrives when people make the most of all that they've been given. We help people achieve financial clarity and enabling lives full of meaning and gratitude. And so our financial advisors have a bond that goes far beyond financial gains. They kind of call it success with significance. We presently have uh, 26 offices throughout the country, a little over 200 financial advisors, and are looking to grow through recruiting as well as acquisitions. In fact, just today, I received a signature on an indication of interest that we have out there for a firm that we're looking to buy and add in this summer. So it's uh, very exciting times for us. Excellent. Excellent. So on that theme, can you share with us today then, what are some of the themes that you see playing out You know, in both the advisor role um, that you're working on and in terms of um, the succession or continuity or acquisition space? like knowing that you're in the middle of it right now, and especially any themes that might have changed you know, since the pandemic started? Yeah, it's a, it's a terrific question. And that's why I feel this issue of succession planning, as well as contingent planning, uh, because of COVID, is so front and center on many minds in our space. We've been seeing over the last five years or so, the original founders of the independent wealth management space, those that were pioneers, they left wirehouses because they wanted a more pure opportunity to be that fiduciary, to be on the same side of the table with clients. Those folks are now retiring. And so as they're faced with the choice of how do they exit, do they exit with an internal sale or an external sale, I've kind of coined this as the founder's dilemma, that do they ensure the continuity of their business by sharing equity 
with their key employees who help them grow the business over the years? Or do they try to get as much as they can by selling to an outside buyer where it's less emotional dealing with the negotiations of who that partner is and what the financial elements are versus selling internally? And these conflicted sentiments often thwart the founder's efforts because it's just, it's such an internal conflict. It oftentimes just holds them back from doing anything. And over that time, and I've seen the same thing, by the way, I've seen on the side where the founder owner can't leave the business, you know, can't walk away. And in the book, I mentioned the phrase, many of them, uh, mostly men, but many of them die with their boots on, you know, is the expression. So do you think that they're caught between they don't want to necessarily make the biggest grab, you know, the biggest pile of money? Or do you think maybe some of them never having been through this before, almost like need a coach, you know, to walk them through uh, the steps that they're going to see along the way? Because for them, it's the first time often. Yes. Most advisors only have the opportunity to sell their firm once. Occasionally it happens where it gets sold a couple of times and they may be able to participate in some of those structures if they kept some of the equity around and they sell to a private equity firm that has the financial intent to turn that every you know four or five, six years. Uh, but most advisors only do this once. And it is a emotionally very difficult conversation for them to have with themselves first and then to say it out loud and have with others. The financial aspects can be quite complicated as well. I have found, though, that if they have good counsel, the financial element is far easier than the emotional aspect of going through the deal. Right. It makes sense. And I heard uh, on a different podcast recently, I heard someone mention that most of the sellers, and this is, I know, oversimplifying it, but most of the sellers are looking for a few key items, you know, they want the check to clear, they want their clients taken care of, they want their staff and team taken care of, and they want flexibility in the deal structure. Yeah, that's a pretty fair assessment. Although I would say, number one, um, I should hope that an advisor doesn't have to worry about the check clearing because you would really, one should perhaps question the the long-term viability of an organization where the check may not clear. Um, that's super concerning. From my consulting and investment banking work prior to coming to Thrive Advisor Network, uh, definitely the number one, I would say, out of 100 financial advisors, like 98% of them, their number one concern over the check is, I want my clients to be well taken care of. You know, Tom, when you think about financial advisors and what they've been through, whether it's been a 20, 30, 40 year career for them, they've been through births and deaths, marriages, divorces, children, grandchildren, floods, earthquakes, fires, you name it, right? Like they have been there through thick and thin holding their client's hand. And it is a very connected service business where very few advisors are willing to sell out, so to speak, simply to get the highest deal structure for themselves. Most of them really want to make sure their clients are well taken care of, even before themselves. Yes, I think you're so right. And yeah, just circling back, 
I should have said it was tongue in cheek, but yes, on the check to clear, I guess <laughs> my uh, my my yeah. point there was I have seen this with firms of the medium size that are worried about you know how big is the person buying me, and they say you know the bigger the firm the better, you know they get a comfort zone, but you and I know bigger isn't always better because some big firms don't execute well on the strategy and some smaller firms execute very well. But it's a valid point. 98% want their clients taken care of. And those are the good advisors, the ones you want to do business with. So is there anything else that you see in terms of any other big disruptions in the financial planning field right now? Things, whether it becomes like obviously the private equity firms and the cheap money, that's one disruptor. Anything else you would want to comment on? And it can either be a positive disruptor or it could be a negative disruptor uh, in some cases. But I'll let you choose which one you'd want to comment on. I see disruptors as being both positive and negative. And I think it's how firms implement some of the changes over the longer term. The major theme that I would say here is the professionalization of the wealth management space. So what I mean by that is the founders of our independent space were oftentimes sole proprietors, some even working out of their basement or their garage or a you know side den in their in their home. And then as they gained more confidence, they they set up shop somewhere and hired a receptionist and some operations folks and other advisors joined with them to share overhead and such. But it wasn't until the last, call it about five years, where we saw from a mass scale the consolidation of these smaller and mid-market firms, whereby professional teams come in to manage the organization, freeing up time and resources for the financial advisors to do what they love to do and what they're best at, and that's working with the clients, servicing the clients, and bringing in more clients. And so that's what I mean by the professionalization of having this full-time executive management team uh, throughout the industry. I think all the rest of the components like uh, robo-advisors, for example, while those could be called a disruptor, I don't see that as anything vastly different than, say, the no-load fund proliferation that we had a couple decades ago, where some of the commission-based folks were concerned that that would dramatically impact their long-term viability. And it definitely didn't. In fact, I think it made more clear the value that financial advisors provide versus the self-help model. I see the enablement of putting tools online for those that want to DIY it, they can. Then when they want assistance, they can also have assistance with financial advisors. And frankly, for the advisor out there in the industry, most of them have gone up market, whereby they welcome these robo tools to help them manage the smaller accounts, which, you know, it can be cost prohibitive to do so on a customized basis that they may manage a high net worth client's portfolio, for example. Yeah. So I think those are all positives. The robo advisors are just really helpful for the efficiency of organizations. I think it's it's such a change up from this cottage industry that we started with 
to have the professionalization come in. And though that should have long, far-reaching implications for how we do business. In the yes. And I think your answer, yes, spot on about the robo-advisors. I know our broker-dealer came out with basically a robo-account for that reason, you know, for the smaller accounts that you want to take care of for uh, client situations where it's below a minimum. They rolled out their own uh, a few years ago, and it's been, like you said, a great tool in the toolbox for that. So speaking of advisors and asset gathering, um, what do you think will be the future effect of the pandemic on savings, investments, and more critically, I think, investor behavior? I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think um, advisors and clients alike have had the opportunity to take a look and kind of assess what really matters to them. And we have seen a shift both in advisor behavior as well as client behavior into really moving into that space and shifting how they spend their money, how they invest their money, making sure that their values are aligned with that spend. And so I think it's been a terrific time over the last couple of years to really kind of take inventory of what and how you've been doing things. And it's a terrific opportunity to make changes or improvements and really set themselves and their business up to build a lasting legacy. After all, our, our reputation precedes us in this business. And, you know, that's the one element that I see advisors really having a lot of intention with is when they look for a succession partner, they want to have confidence when they see their client out in their local communities in the future that they're not embarrassed that they just took a check for the largest amount or sold out, so to speak, at the cost of their client's services. It's just too personal of an investment service that advisors offer. So I love to see a little more balance coming into our industry as opposed to simply looking at it from a financial sale or transaction, because it is really about the relationships. Yes. And indeed, um, this is a, a shameless plug for my next, but the one book I'm working on, let you know, um, I'm under sort of double secret probation not to you know, release the title, but letting you know the next book for me, which is going to be important, is about how we view our client relationships and can we help them more than just the money aspect, you know, but with health and wellness. So uh, stay tuned. But I'm excited because you're right. It's such a personal business that. Um, I've looked at this in a whole, uh, whole different view based on my, you know, 35 years of martial arts and all the yoga that I do. I say, is there more that we can do from our clients? So thanks for getting my thinking going on that one. Um, you know, Tom, go, go on. May I um, interject something there? Because before I came to TAN, I was doing business consulting and investment banking, and I would get a, about a call a week from financial advisors who were seemingly outwardly very successful. And yet in their heart of hearts, they had lost the joy. The business was no fun anymore. They were yep. literally getting crushed under the weight of their own success. Wow. That, yeah. I mean, it was really profound whereby advisors had been so successful. You know, we've had such a long, expansive market 
they've had so much success that once you hit like that first 500 million in assets, challenging to build, a lot of joy in the build, fairly manageable, and you can add on team members in a fairly moderate pace. The next 500 million to a billion is really challenging. This is where firms have to really invest in technology and human capital or getting the right people, expensive people, on their team in a very competitive employee market right now. And it takes a lot of investment. Um, back when I was at Echelon, we called it the Valley of Doom. And so a lot of advisors in that three, four, five hundred million dollar space really want to get back to simpler times doing what they love to do. They didn't get in the business to manage people. That becomes kind of a headache. They didn't get in the business because they wanted to spend time working on regulatory changes and a tech stack and having to negotiate with all these vendors. And now you have to worry about cybersecurity and, and attacks. And it becomes a lot of administration and it really can deplete the joy and take away from that client FaceTime. So we are seeing more advisors wanting to sell and stay. They sell the firm, they keep working perhaps for five years or more in a more suitable function oftentimes client sales and servicing, instead of having to do everything themselves. And that frees up so much space in their mind and their heart to really enjoy and sunset their career the way they want to. Wow, well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I didn't know that, but that is exactly, ironically, why I was motivated to, to write the next book. So thank you, and I'll circle back with you, you know, privately on this as I uh, get more information, but it's fascinating. So what do you think then, other than the advisors that you've connected with yourself you know, over the years, uh, the current ones at Thriving and your, and your great work at Echelon, why do you think advisors usually, and I say the word usually, wait too long you know, to complete a succession or continuity plan, or why do they delay? What are your thoughts on that? Sometimes it can be just paralysis from analysis. There's so many different places an advisor can turn to for assistance. It can be costly. It can be confusing. And they just don't know exactly what to do. So for example, that founder's dilemma that I mentioned, oftentimes a senior advisor is faced with, do they want to forego current earnings or profits to hire a financial advisor that they then need to spend time and either teach them the business or help groom them in their style, their fashion. So that takes money out of their pocket year over year, as well as it takes some value out of the firm if they were to sell or a contingent happened immediately, right? So if you decrease yep. the firm profit, say by $100,000, if your firm was worth eight times, that means you just lost $800,000 in value for the organization. So it's it's a financial aspect, but it's also that time and grooming and oftentimes the the founder of the firm feels that the young whippersnapper coming in does things differently. They don't do things the same way that I did as a founder, right? And that has some uncomfort associated with it. 
And oftentimes the founder doesn't feel like the successor's ready. And also interestingly, I don't know if you're aware of this, but really finding that sometimes the G2 advisor that the founder thought would step up has no desire to sign a personal guarantee to buy the firm or their spouse said, oh no, no way. We are not going to sign our house away to buy this organization. Really finding a lot of those G2 advisors not willing to step up and they would instead prefer to be a servicing advisor. Wow. Now that's the short answer is I'd heard of it, but not to the extent that you're describing it. So thanks for sharing with me and our our listeners. I was not aware of it. And this may be a cultural shift because, you know, you mentioned the G2. I'll just share with you. I had a a meeting with one of my attorneys uh, who's helping me find a patent lawyer, you know, for some intellectual property that I'm working on for this next project. And he said something interesting happening in his law firm, which was, he said, we noticed that the younger associates, unlike, let's say, the younger associates of 20 years ago, he thought correctly, by the way, but he's saying, I thought the younger associates correctly, they wanted to have more family time at home, you know, spend more time at dinners, spend more time with the uh, the children's activities, as opposed to going out and being on the boards of all these different companies, thereby prospecting, right, meeting new client referrals. And what he noted was the older partners, the senior ones were like, hey, how are we going to get bought out if the newer generation of associates, right, isn't grooming the next generation of clients? So you see where that challenge is on the one hand, it's good for the families of those legal associates, but it may not be great for the law firm if they can't create the revenue structure to buy out the senior partners. I thought that was a fascinating lunchtime conversation I had you know, recently. Yeah, and that has many of the same implications in the financial services industry as well. Exactly. That's what I thought. So excellent. So if you were to um, look forward, let's say five years from today, what do you think the financial planning or wealth management field would look like? What trends do you, you know, see establishing themselves? Do you think consolidation haps for, you know, happens forever? Or do we slow down with the consolidation? I'm, I'm curious where you see, if you were to make those bold you know, guesses or predictions, what things look like in the future. Yeah, you know, I, I think what we've seen over the last few years, that trend is going to accelerate. What I mean by that is, kind of a barbelling of our industry. So I think there's a place in wealth management for boutique firms, firms that are truly customized, specialized, and add a high level of personal touch that's valued in the marketplace. And then there's definitely space for the institutionalized firms that can provide mass scale and appeal. You could really liken it to like a coffee shop, a local community coffee shop versus Starbucks, right? Sometimes people want Starbucks, even though their beans may be a little bit oily. I'm a coffee snob personally myself, but they are very, very consistent. And so there's good brand value in that consistency. Yes. You know what to expect. Although you could have better flavor, a more interesting experience and cultural experience by going to a boutique coffee shop. And yet there's room for both. Yeah, no, I think that's a brilliant analogy. And uh, in the end, it's true, especially I find when I'm on vacation, 
you know, wherever you are, whether it's domestically or, you know, travel to the islands or something, I think we all, especially on that, want to find something new like that boutique coffee shop where you're like, wow, this is a, the only one on the island, you know, or the only one in this area. And it's always got some funky design, yeah. you know, some, yeah. some great music. And you're right. The experience is like nothing you'll get anywhere else. Um, and yet you're okay with it because that's your expectation, you know, when you go in there. So that's a great analogy. Um, love that. So I want to circle back a little bit to when, if you remember my interview with you a couple of years ago, there were three takeaways from my interview with you in the book, which was the Zen of business acquisitions. This was done in 2019. And imagine you, you, know, you and I could not have known, Carolyn, how the world was going to change just a few years later, right? Stunning. Mm-hmm. But I want to I want to go back because I thought back then they were so right on. I just want you to comment if anything has changed on the following. I'll kind of read them back to you. Uh, I'm sure you know them well. But one was know where you and your firm stand or fit into this M&A landscape. You know, are you a practice, a boutique or a business? And then know the psychology of the seller. That's if you're a buyer and vice versa. This will save you time and aggravation. And know that valuation only has meaning in context. The valuation will change over time. So I'd love to hear your comments if those are still true, if anything has changed from that time a couple years ago. Yeah, thank you. So I think I I commented about the barbell approach. I think that um, is becoming even more extreme. The firms that are in the middle, right? So TAN is just a couple of years old. We've got $6.5 billion in assets under management, a very robust parent company with $126 billion in surplus that um, we can afford to compete with the large private equity firms that do you know, dozens of deals a year. Really hard for a firm that is even a billion dollars to be able to compete with the private equity money that's out there because their multiples are so much larger than theirs. Mm-hmm. There is multiple arbitrage that they can sell. I'm sorry, they can share with the seller. There's synergy value that's realized through these acquisitions that they can share with the seller. And that just isn't true of smaller firms. So it, we definitely see more of the larger players being able to do, being able to win more of the deals because they have fully dedicated MA teams and onboarding teams that they can just outperform those that are trying to do it kind of casually on the side with maybe one dedicated resource, Mm -hmm. it's hard to match those professional resources. Yes, it is. However, I have heard stories, and I'm sure you have too, of where some of the big aggregators um, have a great um, marketing plan. They certainly have, um, you know, they, they check all the right boxes, and yet, having had friends or connections in the industry join, again, some, not all, but some of these aggregators and find out that there was a little bit of, um, you know, occasionally some snake oil salesman going on there, right? I mean, again, I'm not going to mention any names, but we don't think that bigger, we know that bigger isn't always better. Have you seen that happen on occasion, whether it was at Echelon or today, where people thought they were getting one thing and then may have been sort of offered something else when reality hit? I'm curious if you've seen that. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked this question, Tom. Um, It's one of the reasons I am here at TAN is some of the, I've been on all sides of the private equity deals and it's 
sometimes the uh, end results kind of hurt my heart. Mm -hmm. And I am more about fulfillment. I think we are blessed to be in an industry where we have such amazing financial rewards at every level, right? Mm -hmm. From being a financial advisor, being an owner, certainly, you know, that's there on the private equity side. But the intrinsic rewards that we get out of helping clients each and every day is so meaningful. And so that is one of the elements that I'm very cautious on for folks in the industry is, is what their legacy will be. You know, at, at TAM, we're really building something special and it's quite frankly, not for everyone. I think there's a real dramatic distinction in our industry for when advisors choose who their successor is. And I've always like felt that the financial advisor, it's a very special business and it's kind of a calling for individuals, mm -hmm. right? It's not, I haven't heard any financial advisors that said they got into this business because they wanted to make a bunch of money. It's because they want to help and serve people. Yes, yes. And so as they're looking at what do they want to be remembered for when they exit the business? What is going to be their legacy? I am hoping for the most for our industry and in that the advisors will kind of send that elevator back down and, and help those, whether it's allowing them to purchase the organization or just financially sharing out, kind of tipping out, if you will, as they sell their, their firm to those that really helped them succeed along the way. You know, there are several deals that we're a part of that we, you know, sometimes the seller wanted the purchaser to pay out the employees and not take it out of their own pocket when it really needs to come out of the seller's pocket, if you will, the deal structure. Mm -hmm. um, at TAN, we have we have a 120-year foundation through Thrivent, and we have the luxury to build out this new independent RIA platform for the next 100 years. And that gives us a lot of ability to provide a, a robust deal structure for financial advisors that they can feel good about who they're leaving their clients' hands in. Because we don't intend just to take care of the clients through the current generation. We're looking at this for generations to come and to be able to take full care of the family for their entire future generations and the advisor's legacy. Wow, that's so powerful. And I feel the same you know, with our firm and what we're looking to do. So on that note, I'm going to summarize um, all the great ideas that you've shared with us, Carolyn. And this is amazing because sometimes we do uh, save the best for last, you know, as you just covered. So a few things, we know that um, Thrivent and TAN, as you call it, right, believes in success, success with significance. So I think that's really important that you've got um, that meaningful line behind what you do. We talked about the founder's dilemma. You know, do you sell out to the highest bidder or work with G2? We work with that, your quote, 98% of advisors have one concern. Are my clients going to be well taken care of? And I think that's such a great tribute to our industry, um, as well as the people who work hard, you know, to make those promises happen. We talked about the professionalization of the wealth management space. Um, I would have used the word systemization, but I like your word better, the professionalization, which is true, because it really was for many years, 
this sort of mom and pop businesses all around the country, really working hard, having those client relationships. And then one day you turn around and you got three, four, 500 million under management. And it's really not a mom and pop business anymore. You know, it's an entity. So that's interesting. And then we talked about the Valley of Doom that I didn't know about that you expressed you had witnessed some advisors who really need that help of a bigger partner to step in and let them do the things that they most enjoyed when they were building, you know, this, uh, this wealth management practice. So the value of doom was something new. And then I love the analogy about the Starbucks versus the boutique, you know, coffee shop. One gentleman in the book um, mentioned to me too, he said, you know, you can't franchise fine French restaurants, right? And I love that idea. So his opinion like yours was there's still room for the fine French restaurants at one end, and there's still room, you know, for the Capitol Grills or their larger, you know, restaurant tours who have a game plan and they're able to systematize around the country. There's room for both as well. So with that, I would like to thank you, Carolyn, ask you if you have any other parting words you want for the TAN network. I'll give you a chance here and how people can get a hold of you if they need to contact you. Um, go right ahead and share with our listeners. Yeah, thank you, Tom. So I would, you know, kind of conclude with saying life is short, right? We we saw how quickly things can change kind of overnight. And so enjoying the journey, I think, is so much more important than trying to control every element of your life. Uh, my husband and I, for example, we're buying a yacht to do a little pre-retirement enjoyment not waiting until we retire. I would say that we, being tan, believe that advisors can really thrive with purpose when they have access to the tools and resources that let them focus on what they love to do, that they feel better about what they're doing when they're connected to a community and kind of have that shared calling to make a positive impact on the world and the freedom to control the client experience, the operating model, and how they want to define their legacy. And at TAN, we can offer all of that. So I would welcome anybody who would like to have a confidential conversation to feel free to reach out to me. Um, my email is rather long, so if you want to look me up on LinkedIn, look, uh, look up Carolyn Armitage at Thrivent Advisor Network, and I'll be happy to connect with you there and have a confidential conversation. Great. Well, thank you, Carolyn. And again, once once again, um, not surprised you had great wisdom to share as you did last time, you know, when uh, when you helped me with uh, that chapter in the book. So until next time, thank you for joining me, Tom Hine, on the Succession Fit podcast. And we all look forward to sharing new and exciting ideas with you. Thanks again. Thank you, Tom.